This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 23, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has taken on voting rights more directly in recent years. Abigail Thernstrom, vice chair of the United States Commission on Civil Rights and author of the new book, Voting Rights and Wrongs, The Elusive Quest for Racially Fair Elections, spoke at the Cato Institute July 9th. What jumps out at you in the Supreme Court's recent decisions on voting rights cases? Well, the big decision is the most recent one uh, involving a Northwest Austin utility district. And the decision, the case is normally referred to as Namudno um, because it's got such a long name. But, um, and this is a case that involved a tiny little dinky water district, basically, that sued uh, the U.S. government, so it's versus Holder. Um, it started out as versus McKasey, it became Holder eventually. Uh, that's, that has never discriminated against anybody. It, the district wasn't even formed until uh, the late 1980s. It's... Um, doesn't gerry, racially gerrymandering any, any districts because it doesn't have any sub-districts to racially gerrymander. So the big issue with respect to the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act was really off the table. It's not even relevant to this district. But it basically said, um, but it's because it's in Texas and all of Texas is what's called covered by the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which means that every sub-jurisdiction, every political unit in, in, in the state of Texas has to submit any voting change for pre-approval by the Justice Department. It, um, and, and the burden of proof is on the jurisdiction to show that it wasn't discriminatory in the, in, in the voting change. It, it uh, is proposing to make, this tiny little utility district said, in effect, why us? I mean, what justifies our having to go and beg the federal government for approval for a change we want to make? And the change they had submitted for preclearance was simply moving a polling place from a residence to a school. So schools obviously has more accessibility than a residence does. And, I mean, the Justice Department didn't object. Um, it approved it, but it, on principle, and because it's a little bit of a hassle to have to deal with federal bureaucrats, the utility district said, hey, this is completely unjust. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to have us, quote-unquote, covered, which is the term used by Section 5, by the preclearance provision. Um, why don't you look in the direction of Ohio? They've had lots of voting problems. We've had none. Um, in any case, this is more than four decades past the... Um, uh, passed the passage of the Voting Rights Act. What are we doing in 2000? And uh, they started the case in 2006. What are we doing in 2006? Uh, still acting as if we've got massive uh, disfranchisement in this country on the basis of race, massive 15th Amendment violations. 
Well, the court will always, and especially under Chief Justice Roberts, will always take um, the more limited issue over the broad constitutional one, if it can. And in this case, there was an out. The utility district said, at least let us out. Let us bail out from Section 5 coverage from having to pre-clear all changes in our method of election with the federal government. Now, there is a bailout provision in the Voting Rights Act. Unfortunately, only 17 counties all in Virginia have managed to bail out from coverage. So the requirements are ridiculous. And on top of that, it isn't a this little district doesn't register its own voters. And if the way the lower court read the act, and indeed the way I read it, you had to be a political subdivision. In order to bail out, you had to be a political subdivision that indeed registered voters. It's Travis County in which the utility district is located that registers voters. Chief Justice Roberts said, no, 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 disagreeing with Judge Tatel in the lower court. No. They're eligible for vote, for bailout, and because they can get out from under the Voting Rights Act, we don't have to reach the constitutional issue. Now, my view of that case, and it is a kind of idiosyncratic view, um, my view of the case is that it was a, a bad case to begin with, and everybody, the, the whole civil rights community was in meltdown after the oral argument saying, we're going to lose this case, Section 5 is going to be thrown out. And I never thought they would lose the case. Um, and the clock is going to be turned back. I mean, there's always this standard civil rights rhetoric. We're going back to the end of Reconstruction. The vote is going to be denied. Um, you know, the Jim Crow South is going to come back. Um, massive disfranchisement once again. I mean, it's garbage. It would not even be politically possible, assuming that white America wants to go back to, to, um, to American apartheid, which is what you had in the South. Yeah, I mean, very little different from what existed in South Africa. I mean, nobody wants to go back to that, to that era. So the civil rights groups and spokesmen, a lot of the election um, lawyers were, who are on the left in general, very few exceptions, were totally hysterical about this, um, saying we're going to lose the case. I never thought they were going to lose the case for a couple of reasons. One, because in 2006, Congress, uh, in all its wisdom, had extended the preclearance provision uh, which rests on the assumption that the covered jurisdictions, mostly in the South, can't be still can't be racially trusted. Uh, more than four decades later, um, Congress said, "Oh well, discrimination is just a little more subtle than it was in 1965, but it's still, you know, up and running in full force, and we're going to extend this constitutionally extraordinary provision." where that is deeply intrusive on traditional state prerogatives to run elections in the way that they see fit. Uh, we're going to extend it for another quarter century to 2031, which is what they did with almost no dissenting votes. 
So I thought, one, politically, uh, the Supreme Court does not want the headlines. Chief Justice Roberts certainly doesn't want the headlines. Turn the clock back, end of Reconstruction again, in the face of congressional near unanimity, the Supreme Court has waded in to tell Congress what it could do under the enforcement provision of the 15th Amendment. I thought, this is not going to happen. Um, and in addition, I thought it was a very poor case. Um, I want, if there's a constitutional case, I want the question of segregating voters, all these racially gerrymandered districts, emphasizing racial identity as the first thing you say about a voter. Are you white? Are you black? And if you are, you know, whichever you are, you go into one district as opposed to the other. I wanted that to be challenged. All this racial sorting, this racial stereotyping, it's, you know, it's disgusting. And there was a point, I argue in my book, to race-conscious districting when whites in the South were still not going to vote for black candidates. That was true for a long time. The South didn't disappear. That South didn't disappear overnight. But by now, we don't need this stuff. And um, and it's counterproductive. If not in 2006, and potentially not in 2031, uh, presumably there will be some uh, headlines or sort of high-toned criticism of any move to uh, get rid of a lot of these uh, provisions that I think a lot of people think are antiquated. Is, is this just something that has an inertia behind it that we're just going to have to live with? Well, I think 2031, um, by then, the racial landscape in America it's already dramatically transformed. Um, the pace of racial change continues to be very fast. I mean, who would have imagined we would have a black president elected in 2008? Um, I suspect by 2031, two things will be very obvious. One, that blacks can get elected in majority white constituencies, not just running for the president of the presidency of the United States, but in for gubernat in gubernatorial races, in um, for the U.S. Senate, in House, um, state legislative uh, legislative districts, um, for school boards, etc., in majority white settings. That is already true to some extent. I think it will become just crystal clear as the years go on that this extraordinary protection against white competition for black candidates now built into the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act will not any longer be necessary. But there's another factor, and that is that the South used to be black and white. Um, and of course, it used to be a solid democratic South. Um, it is a two-party South, which means there's a lot of competition, political, partisan competition, but also the fact that it's no longer black and white. You've got a lot of Hispanics that have moved into, into um, uh, Georgia and many of the southern states, and it's not going to be possible. Demographics is going to change the reality on the ground. It's not going to be possible to draw these gerrymandered districts around one group. They're going to be too residentially intermingled. And of course, already you have half of, 
well, a third of blacks living in suburbia. And what, what the Justice Department is insisting on is that districting lines chase black residents uh, out to suburbia and capture them so that they're still in the same districts as the inner, the inner city residents that they escape, you know, from areas they escape. Well, the black middle class is not uh, demographically, culturally, or in any other way part of the same community as, uh, as inner-city residents. And I, I think class differences are going to kick in, residential. I mean, black residents in a... I live in McLean. Um, black residents in McLean have more in common with residents of McLean on the basis of occupation, of social class, of their kids going to the same schools, et cetera, et cetera, than they do with, you know, many residents of, many black residents of D.C. I mean, class matters, occupation matters. I think, I think the landscape is going to become very complicated so that all this racial stereotyping, that is, it's already very complicated, it's going to become more so, so that all this racial stereotyping built into the act is just going to become ridiculous. Abigail Thernstrom is vice chair of the United States Commission on Civil Rights and author of the new book, Voting Rights and Wrongs, The Elusive Quest for Racially Fair Elections. You can watch the full book forum at Cato.org.